I set up a structure today for someone and then they go and change their mind because they're a bit wishy-washy on the strategy and they do something different, once that property's sold or if they keep it or whatever they end up doing, we can end up with an adverse tax outcome, which is not ideal. Hello, hello, everyone. So we're back and we're a little bit earlier today with our episode of She Renovates. And I have a guest today in Brian Goodridge. Now, Brian has, we've been working with him for nearly a decade and he's an unusual accountant in that he has an uncanny ability to be able to make the boring very interesting. In fact, someone recently referred to one of your presentations as riveting. So, wow. And that's the definite plus. So, the reason we are talking today is because people often misunderstand the role of an accountant in your renovating and property journey and why it needs to be someone that has significant experience in property. Yeah, and I think one of the things I think is really important and why Brian and his team are so great is because you need someone that is approachable that you can talk to when you're planning to make a buying decision because the implications are once the name is on that contract, certainly in New South Wales it can't be changed, so it needs to be right. So welcome, Brian, and I'm just wondering before we start if you can provide a more comprehensive sort of description of the types of people and that you work with and the type of work that you do. Well, thanks for having me on, Bernadette. I really appreciate it. We work from anyone that's got like a basic tax return, but not much in there, through to our largest clients. I think last year had a turnover of 300 million and there's about 100 different companies and trusts in their structure. So the wide range of clients in different industries. And I think where we really tend to give the best sort of results for our clients is we've got people on our team that are very, very technically savvy with the tax law. Interesting enough, when you talk to accountants, they'll refer to the master tax guide, which is a like a summary and commentary on tax law, whereas our people refer to section whatever of whatever act. So they're really get into understanding it. And then we've got people here that are very practical in their approach. And so they see the challenge that our clients got. And instead of just looking at it from a linear perspective, they turn it over and have a look at it from the other side and work out the creative approach to get the best result for our clients. Yeah. That, and I've definitely experienced that. And that's why we are committed followers of the Goodridge team. And something that does happen in accounting firms, because I've seen that your company has grown significantly, is often I had this experience actually where I had a friend that was an accountant and was always sort of providing advice. But then as the company grew, he sort of found if I referred anyone to him, they sort of got handballed around and it was not a good experience. So that's what I love about you, that you really look after your clients and that's in our business is really important. So thank you. Oh, thanks, Bernadette. Yeah, look, what, what we try to do is make sure that everybody's got a dedicated manager as their first point of contact because I can't always be that person if I'm running around to meetings or whatever. But it just means that if they've got a question, they can ring them, they can talk to that person or have the call returned the same day. And that's really important. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's fantastic. So let's get on to some of the deals that or the issues 
that we have in property and how having a, an accountant that's property savvy is important. And I think the first one is definitely around what entity to that you buy a property in. So we have people that are buying family homes, they're buying investment properties, they're buying flips, they're buying properties for Airbnb. Are you able to talk to that a little bit about some of the things that you would need to consider that you would need your, a an accountant like you to help them with? I have a perfect example of why you need someone who knows what they're talking about. We've got a client, he's a, a doctor, he's a GP on the Central Coast, and the previous accountant bought his house that he was living in with his wife in a unit trust. And that was done as a way to protect their assets in case something went wrong. But what happened was last year they got divorced and when they sold the family home, because it was in a unit trust, there was no main residence exemption available for them. And so instead of getting the proceeds of the sale split in 50-50, they will get to this financial year a tax bill of about $150,000. And realistically, if that property had been bought in the wife's name when they first bought it, they would have had the same level of asset protection given what the wife was doing, and they would not have paid that or not have to pay that tax. So that's why it's really, really important to make sure when you're looking at structuring, you've got someone who understands this stuff. Otherwise, you have these unintended consequences. Yeah, and I also think that sometimes people try to be a bit too tricky. And you see that, like, certainly in small business, you've always got accountants presenting at events and telling you all these sort of tactics and things that you should be doing. And I really do think that sometimes they get a bit carried away and they forget that it's human beings that they're dealing with. Yeah, it's really interesting, Bernard. So we've been getting a lot of new work recently and every single one we've got, when we've drawn up the diagram of their business structure, we can see that there's issues with it, whether it's properties held in trading entities or whatever it is. And we've had to do a lot of restructuring on that sort of thing. So there's a lot of risks in getting it wrong and a lot of, I suppose you'd call it insurance, passive insurance policies by getting it right. So at our presentations that I do for you, I often draw up the T with yeah. one side's risk and one side's assets and explain how we need to get the structure right so that all the risk is in one spot and all the assets are quarantined from it as much as we can. So if something goes wrong, it's harder for creditors or people making a legal claim to get through to the assets. Yeah, yeah. Then on top of that's the tax side of it. And sometimes you can't get it perfect for both, but you get the balance. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I don't think a lot of people know is if you're thinking about joint ventures or self-managed super funds, those sort of curly things, that the, your accountant is really the first port of call in terms of setting up those structures? Yeah, that's really important. And it's really important to make sure they understand what they're setting up and they're using a good document provider because I've seen situations where someone's using a document provider to set things up and they're in one state, the document provider's in a different state and the wording on the documents is relevant to the state the document provider's in, but it doesn't satisfy the state that the accountant's in. And so on the surface, there's no issues. And unless someone looks at it, there's no issues. But when you go to a bank or if the ATO starts looking at something, it can cause all sorts of problems down the track. Yeah. Yeah. And 
Yeah, and I was at, because we ran an event recently, the Renovating Retirement session, and I was really surprised at how much of that information I was thinking you'd have to talk to, and you do need to talk to a financial planner for certain aspects of it, but a lot of the questions that you ask is the answer comes from an accountant in terms of what you can do in your self-managed super and so on. Yeah, look, at the end of the day, that's an accounting one because we've got to get it right with our clients so that when it goes to the auditor, they're not pulling it up and writing it up for not doing the right thing. Yeah, yeah. So what are some really, some mistakes that renovators can avoid by getting that right advice? Have you seen any disasters or? Yeah, so probably the biggest disaster I see at the very start is people want to get a structure set up for their projects, but they don't have a clear strategy in what they're trying to do. And so they'll come to me and say, I'm thinking about doing this, but I'm also looking to do this and this one over here. And what they're not understanding is that depending on what their strategy is and what they do, the structure they need will probably vary. And so if I set up a structure today for someone and then they go and change their mind because they're a bit wishy-washy on the strategy and they do something different, once that property's sold or if they keep it or whatever they end up doing, we can end up with an adverse tax outcome, which is not ideal. So yeah, first mistake is not having a very clear strategy and understanding exactly what they're planning to do. So when you say an adverse tax outcome, a bit like the doctor you mentioned, having to pay capital gains tax on a house that he should have been able to claim as exempt. Exactly. So if someone said, oh, I'm going to go and buy this place and I'm going to renovate and flip it, and then they get through and they actually, I really like it, I'm going to live here. But because we thought it was going to be a flip and that they're running a business of renovating, we've put that into, a, say, a company, yeah. then that's going to cause all sorts of issues from a tax point of view if they start leaving their ongoing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there's other implications like land tax. Yeah, no, no, that burned out. But if, if it's, say, in a company and they're living there, then there's a tax consequence where the company's providing a, a non-taxed benefit to them. And so we need to deal with that. And they'll potentially be paying fringe benefits tax or it'd be like a loan to them. So there's issues around that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you need to know what you're doing. Now, what about joint ventures and partnership agreements? I know you've got a doozy example of this, someone doing that or not doing it. Yeah. Well, when we're talking at the retirement conference last week, I made a big point about this for everyone and I always jump up and down about this one. When you go and do a joint venture, the most important thing is that joint venture agreement. And I'll be pretty harsh. If you don't get a joint venture agreement set up before you start, then you're an absolute idiot and you deserve what's going to happen to you. For the sake of a couple of thousand dollars with a lawyer, you could avoid so many problems. Yeah. And the classic story I like to tell everybody is the real estate agents. So... This was a real estate agency business, so different from a joint venture in renovating, but the principle is exactly the same. And there was two guys, two friends running it. One was running it. The other guy was a silent partner. He was a solicitor. Everything was fine. The main guy decided to get his cousin involved, and he came on and he was the property manager. Again, everything was fine. Then the main guy decided to get his girlfriend involved, and she came in, and everything was fine for about a week, and then it all blew up, and it got to the point where they literally couldn't be in the room together, otherwise there'd be fisticuffs. And so the decision was made that they would liquidate the company and there was no shareholders agreement involved. So no one could 
say, no, this is how we agreed to do it. We're doing it this way. And so I said to the silent partner, the solicitor, if you were to go and sell the rent roll, you'll make a lot more money and have a lot more money left over than if you get this thing liquidated. And he said to me, yeah, that's right. I completely agree with you, but we don't have a shareholders agreement, so they can't force us to do that. This is the only way that we can do it. And I really want to go down this path because I'm wealthier than they are and they've upset me, so I want to see them lose out. Yeah, pretty bad. It's pretty bad. And look, if you don't have a joint venture agreement, you can't make the other person do anything if they're doing the wrong thing by you. It's hard to get out of it because you own those units in the unit trust and they don't have to buy them off you and no sane person outside of that joint venture is going to buy them off you. So the only way to make anything happen is to go and engage a solicitor and potentially take it to court and it'll cost an absolute fortune. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, very important. And the other thing, like I always say to our women that are considering joint ventures, it's like getting married and you've got to assume, like you have the honeymoon it's all rosy when you buy the property, but you've got to assume that you're going to hate that person at some point in time. Like it just happens. There is this sense and it's not like it disintegrates into chaos but there are periods of time when you really, well, I hate a hard word, but really do not feel at one with your joint venture partner, but you really want to make sure that you plan for that because it's temporary and, uh, yeah, so. Mm. Well, absolutely. It's like a marriage except without all the good parts of the marriage. So yeah, you, yeah. If, when you start arguing or feeling dissatisfied with things, really important to have the discussion with them about what's going on but yeah. you need that document so you can get out if you need to. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there are any other things that our, that you think we should bring to our renovators' attention? So something I've been observing recently, and this is not a mechanic thing, this is more around the program that you run, Bernadette, is that when the market turned, I noticed that people who were closely following your strategy still did okay. And the further people deviated from the strategy that you teach people, the more problems they tend to have. So it just comes back to making sure you follow the strategy and you don't yeah. go, off, go off wild. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Yes. I have been having a few sessions reiterating the importance of the basics. Mm. It's very important. Yeah. People get carried away with ideas. And yeah. that's, that's fair enough. That happens. Yeah. But it's just showing how important it is to stick to yeah. the program. And I think also when you've never been in that position before, there's sort of sense of it couldn't happen to me, like, and we know the market is very a very fickle thing. Unfortunately, I have very recent memories of that in 2019 after the Bank Royal Commission. Yeah, we had three properties and two of them, had we insisted on selling them, would have really, it would have been disastrous. So you must really treat carefully yeah i think the problem is that there's a probably not so much now but i remember over the last 10 15 years there was a general consensus in people's minds that properties never go backwards so buy the property and you're on to a winner no matter what yeah yeah i think that what happened in the mining areas after the gfc i don't think that really sunk into people in the capital cities because it was so far away but we've got clients that are still underwater with properties they bought pre-GFC so that's what's that's like 13 or 14 years ago the GFC happened and 
they've got these properties in mining areas that are still underwater from not literal water, but financially. Yeah. Because the price is so overinflated when they bought them. That is devastating. Look, it is. And the worst one is there's a guy, he bought one in his self-managed super fund and the self-managed super fund, when we revalued the property, it had a negative balance. It's the first I've ever seen it. And so we had to go and get an actuary certificate and get on a program where he's got to make sure his super fund comes back into positive territory within five years. Wow. Golly me. Yes. See, I think really do think those stories really should be more public because everyone boasts about everything that goes well, but you don't hear about the ones that don't go well. No, you don't. And this is the problem I found in the property industry. You've got spruikers who have no expertise in property. They're just there to get a quick buck out of the commission from the developers and they're just flogging whatever they can get their hands on. They couldn't care less whether it's good, bad or indifferent. Absolutely. And those commissions, are you can see why they get so greedy because they're massive. I know. I reckon I'm in the wrong industry. If I had done yeah. that, I'd, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be sitting on my boat. I'm exactly. I'm on my island. Yeah. <laughs> well, plenty of accountants do flog them. I, look, they do, and I don't agree with it. No. Well, that's lesson 101. Yeah. Negative gearing is not for the faint-hearted, which is basically what they are. Yeah. Yeah, look, they're interesting because people get... I went to a seminar once and they had a financial planner stand up and he said, oh, do you think our rate of return of whatever it was is reasonable? And everyone said, yeah, that's reasonable. And he said, well, if you have that rate of return, the property will double in seven years. Then you can sell it and you can buy three more and he drew it up on the board and everyone's going, oh, that's, that's fantastic. And it was a really dangerous thing to tell people because the markets and property markets, it's not a linear process of consistently going up every year. It fluctuates. And to say that you can double your money in seven years, yes, maybe it will happen, but it's not guaranteed. Yeah, no, no. It's interesting. There is a guy that operates out of Sydney and we, Stephen and I, when we sold our house in Beecroft like 10 years ago, we, I don't know why, how we ended up in his office, but he's telling us that we should buy eight properties at once. And, like, we get this graph with the showing the off-the-scale growth and it was such a performance, basically, like the whole process and they expected us to sign on the dotted line and I said to Stephen, firstly, we're not looking at eight. I don't think he was too thrilled about, the, about eight either. And secondly, we're going to go and look at them. We're not buying something we haven't seen. And so we said to them, Hold the contracts because we're going to go and look at them first. We're not, I don't want you to execute them. They said, well, sign them while you're here because it's hard to get you in there. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. And so I went and had a look at the first one, which was just out of Melbourne. And I rang Stephen up and said, this is rubbish. Like there are much better buyers here than this. Like it's a paddock of dirt out there. And so we got in touch with them. And then all of a sudden, every single one of those contracts got executed. So they just overrode what we'd said to them and I thought, anyhow, we did get out of it. Yep. We cooled off on all of them because I just didn't want to risk being in. We would have been down the gurgler about at least a half million dollars. Yeah, I, I think in that situation I'd be in their office and demanding to talk to the boss and get this sorted out immediately. Oh, anyhow, I won't go into that, but what I will say, I did speak to, basically I used a bit of leverage to get all our deposits back. So the only thing I didn't get back was, the solicitor that wrote up the contract 
after that sent me a bill and I said, well, I don't really know. I didn't engage you because I specifically spoke to the company and said I wanted to use our own solicitors. And he said, you know what you signed in that office that day? That was you authorising us to drop the contracts. So they're just sharks. And this guy is still operating. And the thing that he sort of came recommended by someone that I really respect, who has since been very burnt, but the thing that I really hated about that was that he's still operating. He's got no reviews. So obviously he cleans up all the reviews off the, yeah. It is. And then that story you just told them, Burnett, remind me, something that happened to one of our clients. Oh, it's probably five, six years ago. We had a new client come to us. Their super fund was getting audited and they had a property in Queensland. Long story short, the guy that had set it up for or sold them the property was in with an accountant and a financial plan and they'd set up the super fund. The property was in the wrong name. The loan was in the wrong name. It was all completely wrong. And when I was talking to the ATO auditor, surprisingly, and you won't hear me say this very often, he was a really nice guy. And we are going through it all and it became the way the legislation's drafted. There was no way that they could do anything other than sell this property. And then we found out that the property spooker had sold about half of that suburb to people into self-managed super funds with the exact same wrong setup. So all these properties came into the market at the exact same time and they ended up having to pay the loan out with their own personal funds because they'd had a, a personal guarantee on it. So very dangerous. Absolutely. But they still people still buy their stuff. Yeah, look, I think what happens is they're good salesmen and because they pay good commissions to mortgage brokers and accounts and financial planners, have people they trust telling them to go and talk to these people and it sounds like a good idea. Sometimes it works out well for people, but it's not a guaranteed. No, no. Well, I know Ripe House, they did this report on the average growth on house and land packages and it's in the negative. Over the first decade, it was really poor. So those graphs they show you are purely fictitious. And the thing to remember, and this is for property, other investments, business, the more work you put into it, the more likely you are to be successful. And conversely, the less work you put into it, the less likely you are to be successful. So if you've got all those really successful people out there that you see, they're working really hard for their success. They're not just taking what someone else is giving them. And so that's probably the warning. If it seems like a really super easy process and I don't need to research anything or do anything, it's all done for me, you're playing the lower end of the wealth spectrum. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've fleshed out all our gripes about property and structures. So thanks for coming on, Brian. What we will do is we will share your details with the episode so that if anyone wants to meet up with you and have a chat, I'm assuming you'll be open to that. And I'm more than happy for that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, we'll see you later. Thanks for having me, Bernard. It's a pleasure as always. No worries.